Welcome to Sibyline Podcasts, part of our Insight series, where we aim to provide relevant, timely, and actionable analysis in discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe, and share. Hi, I'm Conor Petraitis. I am the Lead Americas Analyst here at Sibyline, and I'm joined by Leo Collins, our Dangerous Organizations and Individuals Analyst, as well as Sydney Stewart, our North America Analyst. We'll be discussing the fallout of the 2022 midterm elections, and uh, let's just kick it off with why did this month's midterm deliver such unexpected results? What can they teach us about future elections? Sydney. Thank you, Conrad. So what we saw in the midterms, I suppose, was a bit of a surprise uh, when you compare it to the expectations that a lot of people had, the so-called red wave that everybody was talking about. And this begs a really important question over the relevance and reliability of polling indicators that can actually you know, deliver such unexpected results in that polling indicators that may or may not be wholly accurate actually can can impact how we how we foresee the election unfolding. But beyond uh, those polling indicators, I think there were a couple of key themes that really kind of drove the midterms and can teach us a couple of things about the future elections in the U.S., particularly as we gear up for 2024. And those issues uh, top of mind are certainly social issues, specifically abortion rights, and also the role of election denialism, which is something that we were very concerned about uh, in the run-up to election and foresaw as a potential instigate, you know, theme or driving force behind potential uh, unrest before the elections. So first on abortion rights, there has been evidence to suggest that in states where abortion was very much on the ballot, that is to say in states that actually uh, moved to restrict uh, access to abortion, there was a decisive factor in turning out voters in favor of Democratic candidates. Whereas in other states where abortion was not a contested issue and was not as much on the ballot, so to speak, or literally um, in terms of actual ballot measures. So states that already had protections for abortion access, Republican candidates actually fared better and were able to capitalize on economic arguments, particularly drawing attention to inflationary pressures. So this actually shows that in the success of some tight races in, in California, Republicans actually went out over Democratic contenders, and some have attributed this to the fact that abortion was not a decisive issue because in California, abortion access is freely available. And so following abortion rights, election denial was a big, big concern. We saw following the election, the Republican candidate for governor, Kari Lake, actually refused to concede after the race was called in favor of uh, Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs, who was or still is. Uh, before she takes up the governorship, the Secretary of State. Now, Lake said that she is assembling a legal team to contest the outcome in the courts and intends to gather proof corroborating allegations of uh, voter fraud and election rigging. She's pointed to malfunctioning vote tabulation machines in Maricopa County polling places. This was something that occurred on election day 
in Arizona's most populous county, and 20% of vote tabulation machines malfunctioned, necessitating a basically a hand verification to ensure that those ballots were correctly recorded. However, we have actually seen in the in the case of Kari Lake that she kind of hesitated after the election uh, and didn't immediately contest the outcome. And this was potentially a kind of signal that potentially election denialism was not favorable among the public in general, and she might not potentially actually gain uh, support from pulling such a move. Uh, nonetheless, she intends to engage in, in a legal case to that end. Also in Arizona, just a couple days ago, we saw the attorney general Republican candidate, Abe Hamaday, announced that he is also going to sue every county recorder and board supervisor in the state, along with the Republican National Committee, to contest the outcome and allege impropriety in the voting procedure. This has done a lot to spread misinformation vociferously on alt-right uh, social media platforms, such as Parler and Gab, and also closed channels on Telegram. However, we did not actually see any significant incidents of violence. And this is something that I think we should continue to, to assess as we head into 2024 and could be an indicator for how election denialism and contested outcomes might actually play out in practice in the presidential election. Now, finally, one key theme that we did also see in the midterms was a lack, the lack of a unifying figurehead, which arguably resulted in the electorate feeling less incentivized. So this opens the question, will there be a Trump effect heading into 2024 now that we know that he has uh, announced his candidacy? I think many, many analysts are suggesting that in 2024, Trump will have rougher go of it than he did first time around and may not actually be able to consolidate the Republican establishment, conservative mainstream and voting base as he was able to before. People are now referring to Trump as a known quantity and might potentially be less able to turn out a populist electorate that sees him as the remedy to they feel is, you know, entrenched corruption or any other ails in the swamp as they say. Now, the question is then, who is the winning horse for 2024? Might not be Trump. Could be Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, who has enjoyed tremendous popularity in the state and fared extremely well in the midterm elections. And the Republican candidates in the state of Florida did very, very well. Could be a harbinger of things to come. But overall, I think that political divisions within the Republican Party are likely to yield challenges uh, for party leadership and stable governance. The Trump wing of the party is emboldened by Trump's announcement and therefore has a stronghold on a key section of the electorate, and they will likely be able to trade in that empowerment, if you will, for legislative concessions and influence in Congress. Indeed. Going a little bit back to one of the subjects you discussed earlier on, political violence. Leo, so apart from the attack on uh, Mr. Paul Pelosi, there were virtually no incidents involving extremist violence during or after the election. Are we to assume the threat of extremism has lessened since January 6, 2021? Hi, Conrad. In a word, no. So although we were spared the spectacular and chillingly symbolic images of rioters storming an established political institution, this is not to say that extremism or the threat thereof has lessened. It's important to remember that following the Capitol riot in January 2021, our attention was drawn to a host of extremist groups, which previously hadn't featured that prominently in terrorism-related parlance. I mean, as a result of January 6th, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, 
among other US groups, found themselves enjoying a greater share of crib sheets and extremism watch lists containing names like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And as a result, people were concerned that some kind of organized action attributed to these far-right groups, some kind of pre-planned action, was going to materialize before, during, or after the elections. Images of armed protesters loitering outside polling stations or state capitol buildings obviously fueled these concerns, and yet no such mass action happened. However, a lack of organized attack does not negate the threat. Firstly, the conditions surrounding November 8th, 2022 were very different to those present on January 6th, 2021. In early 2021, the world was still very much gripped by COVID. People were angry, frustrated, scared, and spending far too much time during lockdown consuming radical theories online. They were arguably very much in need of a chance to vent their political frustrations. The riot also took place a little over six months after the death of George Floyd, and so divisive social issues such as the Black Lives Matter protest movement, among others, were still at the forefront of people's minds and had helped to turn the US into something of a political tinderbox. However, the, the key missing ingredient on November 8th, 2022, as alluded to by Sydney, was Donald Trump himself. The midterms, compared to the presidential election, by their very nature, do not offer voters the same kind of binary, us or them. Trump or Biden, one choice or the other ultimatum. They involve a myriad of candidates, and while some candidates clearly supported Trump's unfounded claims of electoral fraud, they're never going to match Trump in terms of popular appeal. There was no single unifying figurehead encouraging their supporters to cause chaos. However, there are still very angry, very dangerous, and as evidenced yet again by yesterday's shooting in Virginia and Saturday's shooting in Colorado, very armed individuals across the country some of whom are prepared to prosecute targets they believe to go against their conservative values. The word individual is so crucial in this context and is also why forecasting extremist incidents in the US is so difficult. Yes, there may be swarms of chatter on alternative right-wing social media sites about the, the need to take back the US, to save democracy, to show those liberals who's boss, etc. but that does nothing to help us identify the internal factors which prompt the sole perpetrator to actually commit an atrocity. Social media chatter and bravado and posturing do not help us to isolate particular destabilizing factors affecting an individual, and so the threat is still very real. A particularly dangerous scenario involves an armed individual actually killing a prominent politician or lawmaker. While the attack against Paul Pelosi was shocking, the US is very lucky that Mr. Pelosi ultimately survived, and also that Nancy Pelosi was not at home at the time of the attack. If either individual had been killed, the ramifications could well have torn the US apart, especially in the context of toxic conspiracy theories being peddled by celebrities on social media. Groups of very angry demonstrators would have confronted each other at street level, and these clashes could well have escalated into something resembling January 6th. Going forward, a most dangerous scenario involves a prominent politician from either party being targeted and killed with a firearm. In this event, there is a realistic possibility that resultant protests will involve unarmed anti-gun demonstrators vehemently facing off against armed pro-gun counter-demonstrators, and all it takes is for someone to lose their cool and for a shot to go off that sparks a country, countrywide crisis. To, to sum up, there remains a short-term threat posed by sole perpetrators carrying out firearm-related attacks, either seemingly at random or in relation to a particular socio-political issue, for example, gay rights. Okay, but going back into politics and potential implications for businesses operating in the country, 
Apart from what we're seeing in the wider realm of extremism, Sydney, what are the practical implications of the midterms, specifically in the short term, if you could? Sure. So, Conrad, we see several key themes that we expect to be uh, indicative of policy risk for, for businesses and organizations in the U.S. One of these key themes is scrutiny of tech companies. We could, in fact, see a dynamic in which there is bipartisan scrutiny of big tech. However, that is not to say that conservatives and liberals will agree on what the key issues with big tech are. Rather, conservatives voice their concern for online censorship and deplatforming, while liberals are more concerned with extremist radicalization and the possibility that platforms can indeed further terrorism and radicalization in the U.S. So while we might not see bipartisan agreement on tech policy, we could see some attempts by both parties to push for greater regulation of tech platforms. And beyond the tech sector, we're going to see a general trend of anti-ESG efforts. This is likely to be driven by the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees, which will be led by Republican lawmakers will be appointed when the new session commences in January. Now, these committees will have the power to call on officials from the Biden administration to testify, insofar as conservative members of the committees purport that various government agencies have over-engaged in abuse of power and overreach that has harmed the country and harmed the citizens. This is specifically likely to be targeted against the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and also the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, whose agencies have been accused of overstepping their authority. It's also worth mentioning that we've already seen Republican lawmakers in recent days enhance pressure on the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, and intend to call him to testify as well regarding what they argue is a migrant crisis at the border. Now, similarly, these committees, the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees, will exercise their subpoena power and authority to also investigate financial institutions and corporations practicing environmental, social, and governance strategies. Prior to the midterm elections, five Republican senators stated that they would scrutinize the institutionalized antitrust violations being committed in the name of ESG. In their words. Now, while those senators do not hold a majority, the sentiment is shared by their conservative counterparts in the House and is indicative of greater scrutiny of, of ESG in the private sector. And Sydney, have we seen any examples of this by either these Republican lawmakers or governors, perhaps? We've seen the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, you know, enhance a tremendous amount of scrutiny on Disney and revoked their uh, special legal rights and privileges um, and increased taxation on the on the corporation as well. So this is one further signal of how this could also be engaged on the state level as well as in Congress in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Beyond ESG focus, several Republicans have already committed themselves to investigating President Biden and the business dealings of his son, Hunter Biden, alleging impropriety that has allegedly implicated the president while in office. So senior conservative lawmakers have also already signaled that they'll pursue impeachment proceedings against Biden. This has included statements by Representative Kevin McCarthy, who is expected to be the Speaker of the House uh, when the new session commences in January. These investigations may include scrutiny over the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, what they've characterized as a migrant crisis at the southern border. Now, in the immediate future, it is also highly likely that there will be a major conflict over agreeing 
the budget. This must be done by a December deadline, and it is likely that the government will be shut down. And to that end, it's also likely that funding for ports of Ukraine in the in the war will be dovetailed in by Republican lawmakers who are interested in reducing overall material support and aid for, for Kiev. However, it appears that Kiev will fight to see another day because the Biden administration has gone to great lengths to secure uh, funding. President Biden just last week asked Congress for another sizable military aid pledge in, to the tune of $40 billion. But the, the question remains, will the U.S. grow war-weary despite not having boots on the ground? It's important to note also a significant risk that would have a major major outcome, but a rather low probability is if any U.S. service members on the ground in Ukraine who are carrying out weapons checks of advanced weapon systems were to be harmed in any way by Russian forces there, this could have a destabilizing, significantly destabilizing impact on relations between the U.S. and Russia. However, it remains unlikely. It's incredibly interesting to see the push and pull from both parties on the issue of uh, Ukraine. You have people on the Republican side suggesting there should be greater accountability. But just recently, we also saw several a bipartisan group of lawmakers, in fact, push for drone deliveries. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, we did. We've we've seen quite strong voices in Congress interested in, in giving Kiev advanced drones that would have capabilities to be armed as well as fly at medium altitudes. And this would mark a very critical, you know, critical step up in in Ukraine's air capabilities and their their abilities to counter a barrage of, of Russian drone attacks. However, the Biden administration has tread very carefully on this issue, and the Pentagon has not yet stated a final position. And nonetheless, the, the, the group of bipartisan lawmakers who called on Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will have to give a justification to the Congress people about why the administration is not going to supply such drones. Um, it is likely that the rationale will be given along the lines of fear for further escalating relations between Russia and China and exacerbating the conflict. And moving from Ukraine back to stateside, Leo, in terms of extremism threat over the next two years, is it the same old story of far-right groups influencing conservative entities to act violently against proponents of gay rights, abortion rights, gun laws, etc., or will new threats emerge? What are you seeing on your radar? Well, the role of Trump as a rallying figure for a certain now evidently slimmer section of society cannot be overstated, as Sydney mentioned earlier. If the former president does become a class clown in the eyes of one's loyal fans, there is a realistic possibility that his support base, including extremist elements, will quieten down. These are people who love winners, who will go to extreme lengths to make sure their horses win the race. They love the feeling that they are riding a red wave. If Trumpism peters out into a red dribble, they may well look to throw their support behind someone else. If that someone else abandons Trump's provocative rhetoric, uh, including the unfounded claim of electoral fraud in 2020, there is a hope that dangerous organizations armed to the teeth and ready to defend democracy will calm down. The same goes for issues like abortion rights and the LGBTQI rights. We have seen once key Trump assets in his family circle, for example, Ivanka Trump, distancing themselves from the former president's political ambitions, namely his decision to run for president in 2024. If more prominent personalities seemingly abandon Trump's inner circle, it is possible that he will enjoy less support at street level. Future claims about electoral fraud will subsequently have less impact in terms of 
influencing extremists to defend democracy. However, it is also possible that extremist groups will seek to compensate for Trump's decreasing influence across the Republican Party. One remote possibility is that extremist elements will begin targeting fellow Republican supporters, or possibly even Republican politicians, for being so-called traitors. Polls suggest that Trump still commands total loyalty from about a third of Republican voters who vow to stick with him no matter what happens and champion his unfounded theories about the 2020 election, almost as an article of faith. Basically, there, there is a split in the Republican Party between those Trump populists who want to upend the existing system and those who believe they can realize their conservative ambitions through legitimate constitutional means. Marjorie Taylor Greene said last week that she is ready to unleash a civil war in the Republican Party after its toothless showing in the midterms. There is a realistic possibility that extremist groups and individuals will adhere to this kind of inflammatory rhetoric, literally, in which case the threat from extremists will remain for the coming two years. Furthermore, it will include a whole new target set, namely Republican voters and politicians deemed by radicals to have betrayed the Republican cause. So just to touch back on something uh, Sydney commented on, which is the figure of Trump or the figure of a unifying figure. As a former Floridian, I do follow Governor DeSantis somewhat. In the case that uh, Trump were to leave the political scene, when we're not going to assign any percentage to that estimate, but in the case that he does leave the political scene and DeSantis starts to ride a wave of momentum, do you see these threats petering out or potentially staying the same. And I'm interested in both Leo and Sydney's answer on this, but Leo, perhaps you can start off. Yeah, sure. No, it's it's an interesting scenario. In short, yeah, I do think that if Trump goes, extremism will lessen. I don't think it's any coincidence that someone as extraordinary as Trump and the rise of Trump for the past, well, from 2016 to 2020, I don't think it's any coincidence that right-wing extremist groups suddenly became a much hotter topic and much more relevant. And, you know, you saw at the Capitol on January 6th, members of the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, being spurred on effectively by Trump. However, I think it would depend on the manner in Trump's exit. If he was to gradually peter out because people think he's too crazy or he has lost his appeal or he is a broken record and he organically disappears, as it were, I think then extremist threats would also peter out. However, if his removal was due to something more coercive, an indictment, incarceration based on various legal challenges, then we could see perhaps an increase in extremist threats based on defenders of the faith, as it were, reacting to that eventuality. Sydney? I agree with you, Leo, certainly that there is a quasi-religious quality to support for Trump. I believe that for many Americans, he was at some point in time a singularly unique individual that they believed was it would be able to deliver the solution to all of the problems that they they experienced in their lives and was somebody that was you know coming from an outsider an outside perspective and able to fundamentally change the political environment and governance in the United States now i think with somebody like ron desantis if he does in fact announce a bid to run in 2024 for the presidential election, he might very well have significant appeal among the same electorate that feels very strongly for Trump. And he might indeed fare well. Now, how that dynamic will play out if we see Trump pitted against DeSantis is something very much yet to be seen. And I'm not sure we can predict that political dynamic just yet. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Sydney. 
Again, I'll mention NASA Floridian, Florida, and especially Floridians tend to be the butt of joke in many contexts in the U.S. And it will be interesting to see the state have this renewed impetus as the center of politics for a little while as Trump and uh, DeSantis battle out for the Republican attention span. That said, thank you for listening and check out our website for more information. <music>